Chapter 2. Sarah and the Attics. Six years before Thane died. I went to work as usual that day, snazzed out in a black striped suit with a silk blue shirt. I didn't wear a tie. I usually wouldn't. Because they were optional. No one likes to be choked all the time. <laughs> well, not me anyway. It was my first executive job as a civilian. Hey, are you a new heel? Cleon had a thick Cajun accent and a bad case of Alzheimer's. He shared the office with me. He was sad and frustrating. Every time I saw him, we had the same conversation. Tenure kept him employed. My office is like a halfway house for forgotten businessmen. I shared it with another guy who was hardly ever there. Most of my job back then consisted of driving to meet clients, cooling their objections to, de the, to, the, to the deals that we threw at them, or the problems that the maintenance team wasn't fixing. This was outside sales. And if you were good at it, you were a rock star. I was good. They let me work whatever hours I wanted, as long as I kept producing results. Cleon wasn't exactly a rock star, so he lived in the office. Cleon was old, early 70s. He was portly and had a big, goofy smile on his face that could always be seen through his bushy mustache. He wore Coke-bottle-thick glasses that amplified his grayish-yellowed eyes. His hair was cow-licked in a sad attempt to look professional, to match his checkered suit, which might have been hip 30 years ago. No, I let out a sigh as I continued thrumming through my paperwork. I'm not new here. I've been here six months. I'm Mike. We've met. He looked confused, and then recovered with a big smile and a handshake. Oh, I'm Cleon. Nice to meet you. I partially ignored him. It used to be funny. Now it was just sad. I know. We've met. Randy walked in. He was old and gray as well, but he kept himself well-groomed and wore a dapper black slimming suit. He had a broad face and wide jowls. He was my supervisor, sort of, and my friend. I smiled at him as he walked by. Hey, you got a second? For you man always. We walked into his office and shut the door. His desk was covered in client paperwork. Printed emails and binders full of business cards. Behind it there was a huge filing cabinet with boxes stacked on boxes of old shit. I asked about it before. It was our boss's stuff. He was a bit of a disorganized hoarder and just sort of piled things around the office wherever it would fit. I closed the door behind me. I heard you were in a beating with the Bosch man yesterday, he said absently, setting up his laptop, but I could tell there was tension there. He must have already known what it was about. Y yeah, Kenny had me waiting for him for two hours before he showed up. I think you were right. I should have never taken this job. <laughs> he let out a big chuckle and looked at me. Why? What made you see the light? I leaned against the door. I could hear Cleon grumbling on the other side as I explained. He offered me a promotion. He offered me your position, but with no increase in pay. He wasn't all that shocked, really. He just nodded and let me talk. He said he was going to expand the business and that he had all these million-dollar clients that were going to be big and I was going to close them that he was going to hire more people for me to train and supervise. 
that he was going to be able to pay me what I deserved. When I saw it in his eyes, I knew. I knew it was bullshit. That he's this big dreamer with no actual plan or follow-through. I could tell he was making it up. You're right. He swiveled his chair and turned, scratching his head. Well, did you take it? I shook my head. I told him I'd think about it, but I don't think it matters anyway. It's all bullshit. He nodded and then smiled. I could see how hurt he was. Well, I told you it's all bullshit. I told you leave in January when your fiancé and you started fighting about money in the first place. He started to get visibly upset. You know that son of a bitch cut my pay this morning? He put me on straight commission plan. That's not bad enough, but he got rid of my health insurance. My wife needs that. That's the whole reason I'm here. Now we got nothing. She's old, and I'm barely holding on. I'm sorry, I frowned. I genuinely felt bad for him. I already knew they were struggling. I know it sucks. I guess I just kept hanging on hope. I left a good job to be here. I, I believed in him. You put your faith in the wrong man. He's full of shit. He's always been full of shit. You know, he can't afford to pay us both. He let it out. Whatever he was holding back. It's those goddamn kids of his. You know he's paying his deadbeat kids six grand a month to sit on their asses? What? I was shocked and confused. His kids work here? I think I saw his daughter here one time. He let out a growl and rolled his shoulders. Yeah, exactly. They don't actually fucking work here. But they're all getting all the commission and money he's supposed to be paying us. Ask Karen. She'll tell you. Karen was the head of accounting. She was also a close family friend of Kenny's wife. The whole thing was fucked. And I knew it. I guess I'll just work here till I find something better. Go through the motions. He nodded. When I walked out of his office, Cleon was still looking at his computer, talking to it, I think. I realized that he was talking to me this whole time. Or he thought he was. He turned to me and said, You know what I mean? <laughs> I laughed and walked away. The office was a tomb. It was full of broken things. I suspected that on my first day, but I didn't know for sure until now. The first day they told me I needed a new briefcase to see clients. Kenny provided me one. It was already sitting there on my desk. It was made of worn red leather. When I asked about it, they told me it belonged to the guy before me. The guy had a heart attack while working there. It was a dead man's briefcase. I took the dead man's briefcase and headed to my house. It was enough for one day. I had a great house, just on the outskirts of town, away from the traffic, with a big swampy pond filled with ducks and cypress. Every day I had two cute dogs that were happy to greet me, and the love of a good woman. It was home. When I got home that day, Sarah's car wasn't in the driveway. It was odd to me. Something felt off about it. She would leave the house on errands or whatnot, but she would always let me know what was going on ahead of time, so I wouldn't panic. It was raining a bit, just enough to be annoying. I walked around a big puddle to the mailbox, grabbing a pile of junk mail the mailman had kindly left for me. I opened the door, and both dogs greeted me. Thane was the oldest, and had been with me forever. She was an Airedale Terrier with brown and black curly fur. She had a prance to her walk, despite her large size and her eyes were always so gentle. The little one, Ein, was a white and black corgi. He jumped up on legs excitedly, his long tongue flopping around in his usual derpy, retarded fashion. The house felt cold to me. 
I threw my jacket down on the chair and looked around. All of her things were gone. Well, not all of them, but enough to show that she'd left and packed in a hurry. I began to panic, remembering last night. Last night was my birthday. She was cold and distant. Too tired for sex, she had said to me. She was so moody, she wouldn't even talk to me, even though it was my birthday. She acted the entire night as though someone had died, depressed. Now I knew this was a plan. She had planned to leave today and knew it. My heart was racing and frantic. I went to the store and bought a pack of smokes to calm my nerves. I'd quit smoking for years, our entire relationship. But now I felt I needed that old familiar crutch. I calmed myself as best as I could, chaining one after the other in the backyard. I sat there in the wrought iron chair, resting my hands on the patio table. The backyard was tranquil. I tried to absorb it so that I could relax. I stared at the murky pond filled with reeds and ducks and watched the wind blow the gray hairs of the cypress trees. We even had a little walkway that led to a tiny island in the middle that was shaded by a few trees. I watched the geese and the ducks play, bobbing their heads up and down in the mulch, looking for whatever it is that ducks look for. And then I called her. Hi, you've reached Sarah. Please leave your name and number and I'll get back to you as soon as possible. Voicemail? She couldn't even bring herself to pick up. Her voice had a slight rasp to it, the timbre of a valley girl. She's always been a bad communicator. The few times we'd fought over the past few years, they were resolved through passing a notebook around or text messaging. I called again two more times, then nothing. Texting was my only option. Hey, I noticed you left. What's going on? Where are you? It took her a few impatient minutes after she read it to respond. I'm staying at my mom's. Is there something wrong? No. When were you going to tell me? Well, you figured it out, didn't you? I'm busy. Something's going on. Something you aren't telling me. Are you breaking up with me? No, I love you. With Sarah, I always had to guess what was going on in her head, which was fine. I liked puzzles, just not emotional ones like this. This was driving me up the wall. I love you too, but you need to call me immediately and tell me what the fuck is happening. This is not fucking cool. I had a shit day at work, and I was looking forward to seeing you when I got home. She called, and when I pick up, she let out a long sigh, as though she had been reluctantly summoned from a lamp. Yes, Michael... Okay, so what the fuck is really going on? I was angry. My tone was low, but it was obvious. I started pacing back and forth along the pond's bank as we talked. Michael! She drug out my name to where it was almost a pleading whine. Relax! My mom's boyfriend went to jail for DUI. It's his third strike, so he's going away for a while. So she's leaving him. I'm helping her with her stuff. It seemed really off, so I pressed. You couldn't have told me that this morning when I left for work? There was a long pause. I knew her well enough to know when she was lying. She just said, no. So this has nothing to do with your attitude last night? I stared out at the pond, past it, as though there wasn't anything there. No. The way she spoke, she sounded afraid, as though she were truly hiding something. I told you last night I um just wasn't feeling well. 
You feel fine today, then, I smirked, knowing it would catch her. She replied with a simple, yes, and then it was dead silent for a long moment. How long are you staying? What are you helping her with, her startup business? I gave her an out, a chance to come clean to be honest. Her mom had been trying to start her own flower business for almost a decade since she lost her first one. It was an idea, always, with big plans and no implementation. Sarah had helped her mom with it off and on, but never more than a few hours. I proffered the option up as a lie, knowing full well there was no way that was the real reason. Her mother only lived a half hour away. She'd managed the commute on her own several times. Y yeah, we're working on that, she lied. I knew it. She wasn't ready to talk about what was really going on, so she dodged everything. I smiled and did my best to act calm. Someone who knows you can hear the smile in your voice. I played along. Okay, that's fine. So, when are you coming back? This weekend, then? Oh, I don't know when I'm coming back. I don't want to tell you something and have you freak out when I don't do it. She spoke plainly. I lit up another smoke and took a deep drag as if it would kill my feelings. I understand. I glared in the distance through the smoke. So we're fine, and this isn't anything to do with us, and you still love me, right? I watched the smoke wafe up in front of me and dissipate as I listened to her breathe and waited for her to respond. Yes, I love you, Michael. We're still engaged. This has nothing to do with you. I just need space to help my mom. She was expecting a response because she paused after that. I just kept staring into the nothing in front of me. She went on. Don't worry. We're fine, baby. We weren't. As the days went by, she grew more and more distant, never really explaining anything, and never came back. A few weeks later, on a sunny day, I was driving on the interstate, that raised part that goes over the bayou towards New Orleans. I was headed into town to pick up a friend. I was chain-smoking as I went, thinking it would either eventually calm me or kill me. My car was a mess, leather interior covered in ash. Every available spot on the floor had empty cans, bottles, and fast food bags. The distinct lack of care was the result of my declining attitude and deep depression. It had been a week since she left, since she'd moved out. I hadn't seen her. Sarah had avoided all conflict for as long as possible, only occasionally responding to texts or emails. Most of them consisted of me guessing what was wrong and how to fix it, with her not saying anything. The only thing she ever said with any consistency was that she needed space to figure things out, that we were going to be fine. My brain was spinning into overdrive trying to resolve it, and my emotions were back and forth between extreme rage and sadness. I enjoyed solving things. I liked fixing what was broken. Without any real info, though, my mind sailed on a dread sea of possibilities as I drove towards Nick's house to help us both. Nick and I were old friends, but our relationship had always fluctuated between close and cagey. He had a drug problem almost a decade ago, and really burned the bridge between us through his stupefied actions. In the past six years or so, he'd changed, met a good woman, worked hard, and literally kept his nose clean. His life was doing as well as mine at one point, and he hit, until he hit that wall that is unemployment, and began suffering from its symptomatic depression. He went back to drugs, and his girlfriend, his relationship, with Nisa, suffered greatly because of it. I was headed there to help him. He agreed to stay with me so he could stay clean and exercise and find a job. 
all the things he needed to do to get his life back on track. I felt at that moment that I'd be stronger for helping him, that I wasn't as broken yet. Pulling up to his house, he was already out front with a frantic look on his face. Nick was anxious, emotional, and overly analytical. It was a similarity that we both shared. He was taller than me by almost a foot. He too had let the years take their toll on him. We were both portly, fat bellies and jowls at that time. He had thick black glasses, partly covering his bushy eyebrows and broad, jagged nose. His slick black hair was subtly receding. He usually kept it that way, groomed back. His skin had a doughy quality to it, which made his lips and cheeks always seem rosier. He'd been waiting for me. I popped the rear door open to my SUV, and we started piling in his shit. So how's everything with you and Nisa? I like to get right down to business. I didn't feel like chatting or small talk. It would just make me angry. He sat down in the front seat and put his seatbelt on before turning to me. Hey, man, he looks at me with a false calmness in his voice, as though I were a stray kitten. How are you? I've been worried about you, brother. Gauging the tone of his voice, he was barely holding himself together, but at least in this moment, he wasn't high. I'm good. I put the car in reverse and lit up a cigarette, only partially feeling like talking as we headed to Baton Rouge. North. How's that game you've been playing? He didn't really want to talk about real shit. Not yet. We talked about RPGs, video games, Xbox. I kept my answers short. I just really wanted to talk about Sarah and Nisa over and over. I wanted a solution. So, are you and Nisa... Nisa was his girlfriend of four years. She'd become my friend also. She was the one who had encouraged me to commit to Sarah in the first place. In the beginning, I'd always felt tepid towards Sarah. But Nisa's insistence on the quality of her character had given me the mental push I needed to actually commit. It was always something like, She'll make a good wife. Wife her up, Mike. I, I will talk to you. He adjusted his glasses and paused dramatically before going on. I need you to promise me something. I squinted, one eye in suspicion. I never made promises lightly. Maybe, he nodded. Can you be my advocate for Nisa? I just want her... I just want you to be my advocate. I know you talk to her, and she places a great deal of weight on your opinion. I feel like you're telling her to cut me off is really harmful to both of us. So you aren't together then? We were starting to hit traffic, adding to my frustration. Look, the only reason I tell her those things is because it's fucking good for you. You've been unemployed for over a year with her supporting you. I've told you a million times, just get some sort of job. As long as she's there for you, with the way you are, you have no fucking incentive to move forward and get back on the motherfucking bus. See, that's like your opinion, man. He was apologetic and indirect. He would never be angry with me directly. And I understand why you feel that way. But it's my life, and Nisa's not yours. I'm just asking you to be supportive of us. Don't tell me. I don't get it. I was angry, holding back a tone of violence. I started up another cigarette as I argued. I do fucking get it, and I am fucking supportive. I'm not encouraging to date someone else. I know you guys are good together. I fully support your relationship. In fact, everything I said to her was as a fucking friend to both of you. I gave her my opinions. I have told her multiple times to fucking wait it out, and that the man she loves is still there waiting to get clean. That you will fucking pull through this. But you need to man up and handle your shit. <sighs> okay. He held up both hands defensively. Okay, okay, relax, I get it. 
I don't think you understand how much I miss her, how much I love her. It's like physical pain in my chest being apart from her. He was starting to tear up. I calmed down. Look, bro, I do understand. I feel the same about Sarah. She's barely even talking to me. I'm just alone in the dark. I took a long drag from my cigarette. I can't even sleep anymore. My insomnia's back. It's like there's a weight on my chest. And I go back and forth between fucking crying and begging and screaming at her for being so fucking vague. He was looking out the window now. It was starting to rain, as if to add punctuation to our mood. You know, Nisa's my soulmate. Do you think Sarah's yours? I had said it before, but honestly, I'd never put much thought into it until that moment. Sarah had always believed, always told me that she thought I was her soulmate. I stopped really believing in that sort of thing decades ago. I'd fallen in love enough times to see the fallacy of there being just one person to love, to have a perfect relationship. Sarah made me happier than anyone else I dated. We rarely fought, had tons of things in common, and I did really love her. What was I supposed to say? My mouth sort of twisted and confused. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. He was looking back at me now. I could see him puzzling over me. Are you trying to convince you or me? I felt like it was an accusation, like my emotions were not as good as his, or that I was lying. It felt more like a gray statement to me, since I didn't really believe it. I was convincing myself. I do fucking love her, okay? I want to marry her. She's my fucking soulmate. Well, what do you know? I know on the phone you said she's been incredibly vague, and so you guys are together, but that she needs space. He changed the subject, rapidly going into problem-solving mode, flourishing his hands. We know she's terrible at communicating, but are you so sure she hasn't told you anything already that could hint at your unresolved issues? No, man, we were planning a wedding two goddamn weeks ago. The thought made me angry. Were you both planning the wedding, or were you planning the wedding? Actually, she was, I remembered. I wasn't paying attention to her. I was playing video games. She kept bugging me about details that I didn't give a shit about. Michael let out a knowing sigh, looking out the window. Is that all? She also told me. I was starting to see it now, from a fresh perspective. I was seeing my own mistakes. She told me I'd never let her do what she wants. She brought up that whole Disney summer program thing she wanted to do. I told her at the time I didn't want to wait for her. So she never brought it up again. But the last time we talked about it, I told her I didn't know it was that serious to her, and that if it was all or nothing, of course I'd let her go. We're also arguing about money last month, since I'm waiting for my commission check. She was pissed that I wouldn't let her spend $40 on fucking makeup. But I explained the budget, and right now we're eating into it. We're eating into it. Her shopping just makes it worse. She has a shopping problem. She hasn't bothered to find a job to help. She also keeps saying she needs space, and I'm bugging her every time I call her. Well, his attitude shifted with an academic's confidence. It sounds like she's conflicted, and these are all real issues, but resolvable. If you guys truly love each other, it will work out. I think the thing to do now would be to give her some space. What the fuck does that mean? It made me angry. How the fuck are we going to resolve anything without a plan or discussion? Things just don't go away. We started to approach my house and I began to feel anxious about the immediate issue, helping him. Okay, man, I'm going to lay out some ground rules. I'm not trying to be your dad or anything, but this isn't supposed to be a vacation. It's more like a boot camp. The car made that smooth, swishing sound as it went through a puddle. He just listened as I went on. 
No fucking drugs. None. I don't care if you have some bullshit prescription for it or not. We're going to go cold turkey. And I know it fucking sucks, but I've been there. Remember, I'm clean. I'm going to be here for you the whole way, but I need you to stay honest. No bullshit. I'm checking your bags when you get in to verify. Not because I don't trust you, but because I remember what the mind of an addict is like. We're going to wake up early. We're going to go exercise because we're both fat motherfuckers. And exercise will release endorphins and shit and whatever and make us both feel better. He just gave me a defeated nod, and the day went on. Things didn't go too poorly between us at first. We spent most of the afternoon talking about things that provided a happy distraction, like games that we used to play together, or movies that were coming out. That first night I was really worried about him. I offered him the guest bedroom, even made the bed. He insisted on staying downstairs, near the kitchen, on the sofa. I had medication in the kitchen. Medication I knew he would want if it came down to it. I counted them before I went to bed. Twenty-two. I didn't sleep well. I had in a while, actually. Safety was always the fear that kept me awake. I never felt safe. When I did sleep, my brain would wake me up with nightmares from the army. Or trap me in diabolic puzzles of logic. I hadn't had therapy. At around 2 a.m., I woke up and crept past Nick to the kitchen to grab a drink. He had a bit of a snore and was entirely enshrouded in the blanket. Very little Ein, my other dog, had decided to sleep on his legs. Looked up at me for a moment before dozing off again as if to say, Who goes there? Oh, it's Daddy. Carry on. At seven, I awoke with enough time to stare at my phone before the alarm went off. It was like that every morning now. The more stress I had, the less sleep, which only added to it, made things more cloudy. Some nights I wasn't even sure if I'd slept at all. Bounding down the stairs, I let the dogs out the back door with a whistle. Wake up, man. It's time to get moving. He was still in a coma-like sleep. He rolled over and groaned through the blankets. I didn't fall asleep until like 3 a.m., man. I'm exhausted. I glared at him for a moment as I locked the door and let the dogs back in. Sure you did. In the kitchen, I could see him as I picked up my medicine one by one. There were only 16 pills now. Six were missing. Motherfucker. I walked over to the foot of the sofa, pill bottle in hand. Where are they? He wasn't even looking at me. He was speaking to the sofa cushion through the blanket. I'm sleeping. I I don't know what you're talking about. Michael was an actor. He was good at it. Lying was natural for him. Shithead. My fist was balled around the bottle. I know exactly how many pills were in there. There are six missing. Where the fuck are they? He didn't say anything. I growled. Look at me! He rolled over and put his glasses on as though he were confused. I didn't take anything, man. I promise. Go look through my stuff. I went over his things for a moment. And as I did so, he said, Maybe you took them and you just forgot. He was trying to direct me. The lie was so obvious, my eye twitched into an angry glare. I don't drink or take anything but one fucking pill a day when I am working. There is no motherfucking way I suddenly decided to take six last night. He sat up and pleaded with his best puppy dog eyes. I I mean, I I know I didn't do it. Are you sure? That was it for me. Rage now, in full effect. I lost control. I walked over to where he was sitting, inches away from his face staring at him in that moment. I said, 
try again. I, I swear, he didn't even look me in the eyes. He looked down as he said it. I, I didn't take anything. Every sinew in my body tightened at that moment, both hands independently cracking my knuckles. You know me. I glared directly back at him. He knew how capable of violence I was. He'd seen it. When we first met, I was still in the military, and I had laid him out for a single challenge. Try again. This time, if you fucking lie, there will be consequences. Now where are they? He was afraid. He looked down at the ground and away from me. Then he picked up his keys and took off a round keychain, handing it to me. He said, There. They're all in there. Sorry. I didn't take any. Yet. They were there. I took them. I went outside the smoke. I was so angry, I just turned and said, Lie to me again, and we are done. I texted Sarah and Nisa that I caught him stealing from me. Sarah was quick to respond for once. She said, Is he in the hospital? No, I, I almost went off on him. He fessed up. Oh, good luck with him. Nisa immediately called me with a similar question. How badly did you hurt him? I actually cooled off and laughed at it. I guess that's the kind of man I was then. No, almost he fessed up and came clean beforehand. I gave him a last warning. It was funny. Sarah said the same thing. I stood on the little island in my swampy backyard on the edge of the bank just before it gave way to the muck in the reeds. She was genuinely surprised I hadn't done anything. That's really nice of you. And yeah, Sarah knows how aggressive you can be. I did have a temper back then. She was right. I thought violence was good, a good solution. We spent the entire day together as I drove around different parts of rural Louisiana to meet my clients. I couldn't trust him alone in my house. He half-heartedly complained the whole time. Sales were good. I ended up closing a few contracts, so I felt generous enough that I ended up getting us a fancy dinner at some cool Cajun joint. The next morning, I was rushing around getting ready for work, downstairs in the kitchen. I poured myself a tall glass of apple juice. I loved apple juice since I was a toddler, and like chocolate milk, drinking it always gave me a brief throwback of sippy cups and giggles. Nick was getting up too, slowly grumbling at Thane as she got in his face with her big bushy eyebrows. I didn't get any work done yesterday. I think I need to go home. I looked at him crossly, sipping the apple juice. You need to go home? He didn't look at me. He figured the next words out of his mouth. We're going to be a lie. Yeah, my dad called me last night and told me I have to go home. He looked frantic, withdrawing it from whatever it was his body felt he needed. Oh, really? I absently put the glass down and raised an eyebrow as I looked for my wallet on the mostly empty counter, raising an eyebrow. That's funny. You know, I didn't hear any phone calls last night. I'm a very light sleeper. He stumbled for a moment, putting on his pants while standing. Well, my phone was on silent. My wallet was on the counter. My keys were there on the hook, but my wallet wasn't. I always put it there. As a creature of habit, it always sits on the counter or the table. The table was just strewn about with contracts from the day before. No wallet. Oh, really? I didn't believe him. I grabbed my keys and threw on my suit coat. Show me, then. He looked at me, puzzled. How am I supposed to show you? Ein came over and drank water from the bowl near the kitchen as I leaned down to pet his furry little rabbit ears. Show me your fucking call logs, man. If 
your dad called, you can show me. He was taken aback and defensive. He casually adjusted the pillows on the sofa to play it off. I'm not going to show you my phone. That's an invasion of privacy. Fang came over, too, a bit jealous, and started rubbing her head against my thigh to pet herself as I continued. I'm not asking to see your text messages. Just show me the history where your dad called me, so I'll believe you. Fame was trying to calm me. She could tell when I was getting angry, rubbing her little head against me. Nick pretended to look at his phone for a moment, but I could see that the screen wasn't even unlocked. Oh, I, I uh, deleted my history. I laughed at the obviousness of it, petting both dogs and smiling as Thane let out a soft groan. Okay, then, why don't you give me your dad's number and I'll call him to verify. He looked cross with me. My dad won't want to talk to you. You don't understand. He hates you, and he blames you for a lot of the things that have gone on lately. This time I was taken aback and confused. Fuck, what? I met your dad once. He stood up to go outside and look from... I stood up to go outside and look for my wallet. He followed me into the kitchen, looking for coffee or something. My parents are very Christian. You don't understand. He thinks you're a bad influence on me. That statement really showed me something about Nick's character I'd ever noticed before. I'd always given him a hard time whenever he did something I disagreed with, but I'd always done my best to be there for him and support him. If his parents had a poor impression of me, it was his own doing. I shrugged it off. Whatever, have you seen my wallet? He had a false sense of empathy to his voice, like he was talking to a child. No, I haven't. Did you check your car? Where do you usually put it? The fucking counter? It's not there. I guess I'll check my car. He looked at me sympathetically. I really hope you find it, buddy. I lit up a cigarette in the doorway and looked at him. If I don't fucking find it, neither of us are going anywhere today. I'm out of gas. I tore my car apart, every nook, every cranny. I checked under the seats, actually picked up the trash on the floor so I could be more thorough. The glove box, the console, it wasn't there. I already knew what happened. I went back inside. He was sitting on the sofa, watching TV, wrapped in a blanket again, with all of his things strewn about on the floor in piles. I looked on the kitchen counter. It was there in plain sight. Do you know where my wallet is? I don't know, Mike. Check the counter. He was so casual, turning on his laptop and putting on his headphones to play a game. I looked at my wallet. My cash was gone. It took everything not to just snap right there and beat him bloody. I knew what happened. He just figured I was too dumb to realize it. Where is my cash? He looked around absently and looked up at me as though confused. Did, did you have any cash? I'm done playing with you. You and I both know what happened. Get your shit and get the fuck out. My knuckles were clenched. I was half waiting for a reason, half hoping there wasn't one. The little part of me that was sane remembered I had a client meeting in a half hour. He packed his things somberly with the speed of a racing sloth. I went over and grabbed it and threw it all in the front yard. He didn't respond with any aggression. He just sadly walked out and said, Can you at least give me a ride to the train station? I grabbed the dead man's briefcase and locked the front door behind me. No, I'm running late, and I'm not doing shit for you ever again. We are not friends. And frankly, I turned to face him with an accusing hand, all fingers extended, pointed right at his face. You are fucking lucky that I do. Otherwise, I just glared for a moment, watching him shrivel and walk away. He was the first friend I lost that year. The incident only added to my stress. 
How could a friend do that to me? Someone I allowed into my home, offered to help. He tried to play me for a fool. I guess I certainly felt like it.